I'm joined today by Brian Osborne hey guys. and Tim Chafee All over right. there. So Brian's been trying to adjust his chair to make himself look a little <laughs> bit taller when Tim and I are up here on the stage. And we'll get you a high chair. It's height discrimination, I tell you. This is such privilege for or you Or lack yeah. of height discrimination. Or lack of height discrimination. Yeah, we're discriminated <laughs> yeah. against all the time. We hit our heads on things. I was trying oh, to buy a new car Can you get that off the top shelf for me? Can yeah. You, did you play basketball? Yeah. But yeah. you did play all basketball. Those, all those yeah. stereotypes. Yeah, we did. But <laughs> So welcome to everybody. Um, we are here today to talk about some different news and culture items. We've got a live studio audience with us here at the Creation Museum. You guys can clap and let everybody know you're here. A couple of things to talk about as far as resources that are available from the ministry. Our ABC Digital is the Answers Bible Curriculum that we've taken from a standard print edition, like you may be familiar using in a typical Sunday school classroom, and gone to a digital format so that people can yep. access those things a lot more easily, get the resources, tools there to set up your classrooms, and, and pass out those resources to all the teachers without having those hard copy books to try and keep track right. of. Great resource, uh, we'd, we'd love for you to get a hold of that and use that in your Sunday schools to, to teach kids of all ages. This goes from uh, pre-K all the way up through adult levels yep. and it's a great synchronized uh, Sunday school program. And it goes through the Bible chronologically, which is amazingly powerful. We're doing apologetics as you go through. We're tracing the gospel all the way through. It's just an amazing curriculum. I know we're biased, but it really is to give you a good foundation to know what you believe and why to defend the faith in, in multiple generations in your church, in your home. Uh, we're excited about it, and this will be just an easy way to use it in your church setting. Mm -hmm. And then we've also got the uh, homeschool edition, which we've recently come out with. So a lot of people have taken what we did for ABC Sunday School, and they've adapted it into their homeschooling. People were asking us, when are you gonna have a homeschool edition? <laughs> and that's right. finally available, at least the first installment of it. And then, uh, the, so the first year is available now, and then we're looking to have the second, third, and fourth years available each fall over the next three years. So that'll be uh, offered as a curriculum from Answers in Genesis, a great resource for you guys. Now, I'm past that stage. Tim, you're past that stage. You still got some little ones. Who oh, yeah, be three and seven. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, they love the stuff, and we're showing it to them. And, yeah, we love teaching it to them. And I just love just teaching my kids. And so, but, yeah, it's good. All right. Let's you're, get you're not just your kid, your best friend, right? Oh, my goodness. So little, this is a little side note, but my little daughter, Macy, who's three years old, we have Alexa in our home, multiple Alexa units, and you can make announcements through Alexa, right? So she was downstairs making a, announcements through Alexa. She made like 20 nonsensical ones, but then eventually she said, Alexa, announce that me and Daddy are best friends, which was heart melt, right? Yeah. No discipline for a week now. Um, <laughs> Those little girls can, can oh get us daddies, can't they? Yep. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm following along on Ken's uh, Facebook page, Ken oh, yeah. Facebook page. We've got people checking in from Ontario and California. I got and somebody from Minnesota. Minnesota. Yeah, Minnesota. Either this weekend. We've got uh, Oregon and Channel Islands. Oh, there you go. By the way, quick little shout out in the Osborne household. Our great grandma Warren is turning 92 today. Today is her birthday. So happy birthday if you're watching. <laughs> Very cool. All right, our fluff item for today comes to us from Florida, and we've got a little video clip here. It says, watch, Florida police capture 10-foot alligator found beneath car in Tampa. So I grew up in a little different environment that the desert, uh, desert west, and we would come out to our cars and we'd check under our trucks and things when we'd been out in the bush for rattlesnakes. 
I never had to come back and look for a 10-foot alligator. And I grew to... up in Wisconsin where you looked under the snow for your vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't have to worry about alligators right. there. And you can see there in the video, they, they captured this very large uh, alligator. That's a pretty good-sized gator. So, in an apartment complex. So, came out in the morning, getting ready to go to work, and... There took, it was. And then they took it to the local restaurant, right? <laughs> now, <laughs> That'd be Louisiana. True, no, true yeah, story. Right. I was at yeah. Jungle Jim's Market last, uh, oh, yeah, about right. two weeks ago, <laughs> and we walked through the, the fish section, and there was a full, must have been at least eight-foot-long alligator out there on the ice ready to be processed and sold. So it, it can happen here in Kentucky, too. It was from imported from Florida, Ohio? of course. <laughs> No, they said Ohio the alligator right, not was Kentucky. not harmed. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. It's just across the river in yeah. Ohio. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. All right. Our first article today um, comes to us out of South Korea. Due to population control, one South Korean, Korean island has just three children remaining. Now, you may have heard of this uh, phenomenon, especially with respect to China and, and the way that uh, there's a lot of coercion in their uh, family planning policies, as they refer to them, that there's only one child allowed in most families, and it's usually a male, and they've been called the broken branches generation, and right. they've lost this whole generation of females through this. But this is actually happening in South Korea as well, which was a little bit of a surprise to me. Uh, I don't consider myself ignorant, but I was surprised to find that there was such a disparity in South Korea. And this is just the one island of Nakdu, I think it is how you pronounce it. I may have butchered that, but that one particular island. And it's really looking at one rural town of about 100 people. So out of 100 people, there's only three school-aged children. So it's not a huge population we're looking at here, but it's a good sample and representative of the struggle happening throughout all of South Korea and many Asian nations, it would seem. Yeah, this one, it didn't say anything about it being through coerced abortions right. or anything like that, which sometimes is in China. Not from the government, directly, yeah, but definitely a social coercion, it seems. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they had a statement from a, a young lady that um, if, if I have to choose students, between yeah. having a career and, have, and raising a child, I have no doubt whatsoever that I will choose my career, which we, we see that mentality or that attitude here in the United States a lot. The, the young girls are being told this is preferable. Um, they're, they're always, you know what's interesting, my wife and I talk about this, my wife brings this up, not me all the time. She says, you know, what frustrates her so much is young girls are being told they can be anything they want to be. And if they say, I want to be a mother, well, no, you can't be that. Or don't be a housewife. You, yeah. Yeah, that's, mm -hmm. as if that's so it forbidden. So it communicates the clear societal pressure here. And we yeah. see some other statements in the article talking about how people, are feel, uh, people feel pressured to be sterilized, whether that's the male or the female. And that really goes against what we think of as the biblical ethic of life, that life is a valuable thing, that That's to right. bring children into the world is a joy, and that our goal there then is to raise up children who will worship God and, and honor Him in those ways as well. Yeah, it really just shows uh, the power of a worldview. I mean, ideas have consequences, and, and bad ideas end up having victims and bad consequences, and we see that happening here with this, certain, with this particular ideology. Mm -hmm. so. All right, next article. This best-selling devotional has a prayer that literally says, Dear God, please help me to hate white people. This is a real book you can buy at Target. Now, this is kind of one of those uh, shocking headlines, and when I saw it, I expected it to be something along those lines, but then like actually... clickbait or something. Yeah, a little bit of clickbait, but I actually started reading and right off the page, images of the, of the actual book, and that's what it says, and you can see that there underlined the opening of this prayer, Dear God, please help me to hate white people, or at least to want to hate them. 
at least I want to stop caring about them individually and collectively. A rather shocking statement. And as we think about uh, the, the context of this, this is a, a black woman who on her Twitter profile describes herself as a womanist theologian and she mentions intersectional justice in those things. And these are all yeah. ideas that come to us out of the worldview of critical theory or critical race theory in this case. So if she's a womanist theologian, does she say a woman instead of a man? That might be the case. <laughs> <laughs> right. But and by the way, it, it's a book and she's just one of the authors, I believe. This is her particular uh, contribution to the book, her devotional, her prayer. But the book itself is doing really well, rising on the charts of New York Times bestsellers. So it's sold in Target and at Amazon, etc. So it is not a fringe book, and keep that in mind. And the ideology that she is really spewing here is not fringe in our culture anymore, unfortunately. This is really being pushed in workplaces, in training workplaces, in your schools, even in your lower age groups from kindergarten up through college. This critical theory ideology is permeating our culture. So as you read and hear these ideas, and hopefully you're shocked by them, be aware this is not a fringe movement. Mm -hmm. It is very much in the mainstream, unfortunately. So we need to be ready to deal with this for ourselves, for our kids, and the coming generations. I, I seem to remember there was a very well-known civil rights leader who had a dream that people would be judged by the content of their character rather yeah. than by the color of their skin. And what people are being told to, and which by the way, that fantastic. That's, that's what we should be striving for. Yes. Um, but what people are being told today is that if you are um, Caucasian, if you're white, then that means you are part of the op oppressor class and everybody else is being oppressed by you. Therefore, it's right to hate you. It's right to, that's right. to pray to God that you would hate them even more. Yeah, and now, as I looked into the context of this a little bit, the, the author uh, put out a statement on her uh, a personal blog and some other things. And other people are claiming that we're really just taking this out of context. And what she was trying to do was to develop a lament and say that this is her lived experience. This is the way she's experienced the world. There are certain white people who are allies and she likes them because they're supporting her. And there are others who are terrible neo-Nazis and, and she never wants God to, God to deal with them in any way. But it's this middle group, which sounded a lot like white evangelicals, and she mentions the Trump-supporting Fox News watching. So we get a lot of political flavor in, uh, in this prayer that she's offering. And as I think about, uh, Tim, the, the different types of laments and imprecatory psalms that are in the Bible that she's trying to compare this to, do you see that as a legitimate comparison here? Not at all. Um, there are times where the psalmist will express frustration with the Babylonians or with you know some people group who were very violent and did horrible things Certainly. to um, to the Jewish people and so you'll see that but it's not based on race it's not based on something that um, they're what they just think might have happened and, the, and at the same time there's also a plea for you know to cleanse you know David talks about cleansing his heart you know that he yeah. needs that rather than this where I mean there's even a prayer in here and Brian I think you were probably going to talk about it to harden my heart. Can you imagine praying to God yeah. to have your heart hardened against certain people? And yet Jesus tells us, I mean, this is somebody who is claiming to be coming from a Christian perspective. Um, Jesus tells us to love one another, to love your neighbor, to love your enemy. I think that covers everybody. He doesn't well, say yeah, only right. if they look like you or... It, it's, or if they agree with you. Or, yeah. And right. it really... Uh, 
Roger, you hit on a little bit. There is a very strong political element to this that she includes in there, which shows that it's not just a her lived experience and it's a well, I want. And that's uh, her standard too. Her lived experience is the standard for what is real to her, what is truth for her, not a biblical authority standard, which will be David's standard in those imprecatory prayers. Mm -hmm. so that's another difference between what she's claiming, the real imprecatory uh, prayers you find in the Bible. And I mean, if we'll read a little bit more because we want you to really understand just how vile this ideology truly is. And I was telling them earlier before the show, you know, you read that first paragraph and you think it can't get worse. And then it does. And then it gets even more worse. And you can tell, and a lot of her prayers aren't just geared or directed towards white people, but actually towards those who are professing Christians, which is yeah. also a difference compared to imprecatory the, prayers. And the other thing with the imprecatory psalms, you don't see a prayer in there for the psalmist to hate them more, to give them more hate toward these right. people. It's, God, you bring judgment on them because of what they did. It's calling on the Lord to act in judgment, which maybe isn't the... You know, from our perspective, we do want justice to be done, but we also want God's grace and mercy to be poured out, and we want the best for these people. But you can understand if your family's been wiped out or your whole nation's been wiped out, having some um, some bitterness and and, sure. and unleashing that. So here's um, a bit more context. Here's another part of her prayer. Again, she specifies she doesn't hate the white or the woke whites, those who agree with her, or those neo-Nazi types. My prayer, she says is that you, Lord, God, would help me to hate other white people. You know, the nice ones. The Fox-loving, Trump-supporting voters who don't see color, but make thinly-veiled racist comments. They're happy to have me over for dinner. Those sort of white people, those who would welcome black people into their churches, those are the ones that she is saying, I really need to learn to hate them, Lord. Give me a hatred towards them. And again, this is rooted in critical theory, ideology. They're the oppressors. I've been oppressed. That's my lived experience. Therefore, that is what is true. Help me to flesh that out in my life. And I think we can tell pretty easily that's not in line with any biblical prayer. Yeah. And towards the end, as you read through the entire thing, it's, it's about four pages on this in this devotional prayer book, as it's called. She tries to make that shift toward, um, I'm going to love all people anyway, but it, as Tim mentioned earlier, this really doesn't reflect the pattern that we see in Scripture. We should be asking God to give us a heart of compassion toward people who are not like us, who we have a hard time loving. I'm, I'm one of those cowboy up, get it done, kind of get back in your saddle, let's move on kind of guys. Not much compassion coming for me. So I've had to work on that. But that's a way that I take the ways that I'm not like Christ and yeah. ask God to transform me more and more into the image of Christ. In those oh, I've been waiting for that day that he would do that to you. No, I'm just kidding. I've, been pr I've been praying so hard for you, brother. It's working. Uh, Keep it you up. think I'm a jerk now. You should have known me back let then. Me just, uh, so there's another, yeah, there's another statement. You'll read that here. quote. Yeah, yeah let me see them it. as hopelessly unrepentant, reprobate, reprobate bigots who have blasphemed the Holy Spirit and who need to be handed over to the evil one. Talking about white, be white Because people. of the color of somebody's yeah. skin, that's what you're called. But look, let's bring this back to what Scripture teaches, that we all... Everybody in this world, everybody who's ever lived, goes back to Adam and Eve. We are all made of one blood. That's we right. all come go back to Noah and his wife uh, later than Adam and Eve. And uh, we all have the same problem, sin. We've all rebelled against our Creator. And we all have the same solution. We need the same solution. That is Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us all, not just for people who look a certain way. And from a biblical perspective, there is no basis for racism, for treating one person better than another because of the color of their skin. And, and it's just, 
there, there's no basis for that. There's not. And that's a great biblical answer, great biblical summary. And so let's compare that very quickly to critical race theory ideology, which I'll give you here, so we can realize just really truly and clearly you can't squeeze, squeeze this secular ideology into a biblical worldview. She said in her prayer book, free me from this burden of calling them to confession and repentance, talking about white people. Grant me a get-out-of-judgment-free card if I make white people the exception to your commandment to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. That's critical theory, speaking in a nutshell. You cannot squeeze that into God's Word. As Christians, we stand on that biblical understanding on all issues, including racism, so forth. Mm. All right. Next article. By the way, Ken sent me a text that he's watching. I'm not sure really what that means, just to let you know. <laughs> oh, all right. Okay. <laughs> I, think, I think he said he wanted to third what we were saying about Roger. Oh, okay. <laughs> that, uh, that might be it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. On to a scientific topic here. Paleont- our paleogeneticists are instructed to be careful that science doesn't end up controlling the narrative as another scientific discipline falls to the woke warriors. So what we have here is a description of paleogenetics. So that would be looking at the uh, ancient DNA characteristics or trying to discern those by looking at uh, different mutation clusters in different people groups and how they may have migrated and how they inherited those things. Uh, Dr. Nathaniel Jeanson, who we work with, mm. has done a lot of work in this area trying to trace back the lineage of the different people groups that we see, especially uh, in the context of spreading out from uh, the Tower of Babel That's after right. the judgment there. And looking at the DNA and how these different groups are related to one another, we can put them back into uh, basic people groups and the way that they spread out over time. And here we have a a warning from this group of scientists to other scientists who are studying this ancient DNA to be careful not to let the science drive the story that you're telling with your data. And that seems to be the exact opposite of what we would expect. And that's why here the the title of the article saying that the woke culture has overtaken uh, this segment of science. Yes, evidently you, you, from a woke perspective, you follow the science until it disagrees with your narrative and then you abandon the science and keep to your storytelling. Right, because they're they're dealing with, with, like we talk about ancient people groups, people who have cultural roots that go far back and they've cherished these traditions or stories or legends that are part of their past. And if you have scientists come in and do some DNA studies and say, uh, actually, we've learned that those things are not true. You didn't really come from whatever you think you came from. Here's yeah. where your people came from. And um, if, if you're being insensitive in how you present that, there's one person that cautions, hey, if, if we do make those discoveries, be sensitive in how you present it. That's good advice. But the, yeah. what these other people are now saying is don't ever present it at all. Don't talk about it. Don't You, you hide that. Um, and Roger, we talked just briefly. Uh, Roger was... Uh, raised in a Mormon home. Was it a tall discussion just between you two? Uh, you probably won't be able I to. I couldn't hear it. Probably probably right it's going to go right over, over my head. My head? Okay. <laughs> um, so, Roger, you were raised in a, in a Mormon yeah. home where they have this story that goes back to, hey, these ancient people groups in America who are they're not talking right. about the Native Americans yeah. as we would think of them. Yeah. As, so the um, Native Americans here are, um, and their ancestors were from the two different time periods where two different groups of people came over from the Middle East and so they, they claim the Middle Eastern ancestry and the Jewish ancestry uh, of the people here in North America. So how does the DNA line up against that? As we look at that, we see almost the exact opposite. The DNA seems to look like it's more from an Asian migration into 
uh, North America for these different Indian tribes and things. And it actually kind of refuted the stories that are told by Joseph Smith in the, uh, in the writings of Mormonism. And so this was a big apologetic piece that was used to show that the ideas of Mormonism are founded on a false foundation. Mm -hmm. And we'd expect that. The problem is, as we think about um, understanding science and how to analyze all this data, we want to interpret the data as, uh, as generically as possible, but we never want to abandon our biblical starting point in those areas. So we're always going to look at the data through the lens of scripture. Right. Now, for the most part, we would assume that these other scientists are going to try to look at uh, these things through the most neutral, naturalistic lens, uh, the evolutionary lens that man has evolved through these different uh, groups over time, and then tell their story, their narrative based on that. But here, they're cautioning to not let that data overthrow the origins stories of people uh, from different tribes here in United States and up in Canada. But if it comes to Christians or, or Jews, if it comes to anything that from the biblical perspective right. and science allegedly disproves that, well, you can shout that from the mountaintops and be as insensitive as you want to be and tell That's them right. how stupid they are for believing that. But if it comes to any other group, it just... But, and by the way, it's about. really amazing as we study genetics, how much genetics is affirming, confirming the Bible again and again and again. We expect that from a biblical worldview. But what they're finding is that really, genetically speaking, we're all basically mutts, right? We're a lot more closely related than we think we are. Our ancestors are a lot closer than we think they are for the different people groups around the world. Actually, some of the most recent genetic findings show us that uh, the difference between any two people on planet Earth is just 0.1% of your DNA. Mm -hmm. Put another way, every person on planet Earth is genetically 99.9% .9 identical. Yeah, and Dr. Jensen, as we've mentioned before, he's yeah. done a lot of study in this area. He's done uh, lots of work trying to put these pieces back together, and he's working on a new book project that will help us understand the origins. So when we think about yep. uh, the... I have this pure lineage that goes back to this people group. Well, that's probably not the case. You're probably a lot more mixed up than you think, even for people of European descent who uh, have traditionally thought of themselves of, as having this very pure origin. And that was part of the, the flaw of Nazi Aryan thinking, that they were the pure race that was going to be. And that's one of the neat tools that we have today. And I'm not endorsing any of these companies, but there's like a 23andMe and some of these other ones that do these genetic tests. And they, they'll say, you're like 40% from this area, 50%, you know, and they have all these percentages. It's people are seeing, yeah, actually, we have a much more diverse background than what we thought. And what it's showing is, yes, we are all human. We are all one. There is one race, the that's human right. race. And uh, so that we should we should celebrate stand that, on that. Yeah, right? celebrate that. Absolutely. And I think most of those studies focus more on mitochondrial DNA, which is a bit more limited. The Y chromosome can be studied much more in depth. That's what Dr. Nathaniel Jenton has looked into. There's a great series Roger mentioned earlier. You can go to YouTube and watch it between Dr. Nathaniel Jenton and our founder Ken Ham. They have a great dialogue. It's called the New History of the Human Race tracing really our history of humanity from a biblical perspective about the science of genetics confirms this. And it's only like 23 parts, right? It's only 23 <laughs> parts. It's pretty extensive. It's yeah. so much good stuff, though. So I really encourage you, you to check that out. You can binge watch it. But, then, but you should really go to answers.tv and watch yes. it. Oh, that's right. It's, that's it's correct. Answers.tv. Well. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Nathaniel's working on the book right now. And that should be out hopefully soon. All right. Yeah. All right. Next article. 
Um, pioneering pollinator study offers clues to Darwin's abominable mystery. Now this mystery was supposedly how the different pollinators and the flowers that they pollinate could have co-evolved with one another over time. So if you think about a, a bright red flower and it's growing and it's got a cup and the nectar's way down in the base of this cup, whatever comes along to get that nectar has to have a tongue or a beak long enough to get inside there mm -hmm. and extract that nectar. And this becomes a bit of an evolutionary quandary because what developed first, the long tongue to get in there or the deep flower that necessitated that? And it seems to be this bit of a, a chicken and egg problem for the evolutionary mm -hmm. explanations of these. But this study has, has taken uh, genetic variations in different flowers, and it's turned the flowers from bright reds to softer tones like whites and pinks, and that attracts a different type of pollinator. And if you think about uh, a hummingbird, you may have seen little moths buzzing around, they're called hawk moths that kind of imitate a hummingbird, and they've got the long proboscis to stick down in there and grab yeah. that nectar as well. And when they change the flower color, as we would expect, the pollinator changed and the hawk moth was able to pollinate this flower rather than just the hummingbird. So at that point, the flower evolved into a cow, correct? No, it's still a flower. Okay. Still the same flower, still just, the same species. Just a different color. Just checking. Just I a different know. color of petal. Mm -hmm. uh, and by the way, we, we know which one came first between the flower and the pollinator, don't we? Yeah, yeah we've got that described for us in Genesis. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. the, the plants were created on day three. Day three. Yep. So, before the living creatures, which were five and six. So. And basically, all this is showing is you change the color of the flower, you change who the flower attracts to do the pollination. And it shows some maybe how you get speciation within flowering plants, but they're still flowering plants. That's all they are. There's no change from a flower to a cow, right? And, and really, and you got to be careful, if you read just the title to the article, you know, a pioneering pollinator study offers clues to Darwin's abominable mystery. We're having answers that confirm evolution. Now, all you're showing is flowers make flowers and hummingbirds. Hummingbirds, just variation within the kind like God created. So look with a discerning eye as you kind of read those titles. And as we think about uh, how all those pieces developed. Um, Dr. Jensen, who we've right. already mentioned, has a great book, Replacing Darwin, that helps teach how we can understand those things from a biblical perspective. Really so good. how they are created and designed with these specific functions. We didn't have to have this evolutionary arms race for the long tongue to reach in. God created these things in place and they were able to ad adapt in certain situations and, and the natural selection process still happens because God's programmed that into their DNA. So we don't have to wonder how the hummingbird developed that long tongue. We know that that's something that God created with it. Or how it. it developed in the first place. Yes. That's right. <laughs> um, so we don't have that chicken and egg problem that we see in the evolutionary worldview. This is the Dr. Jensen highlight show. It is. Right? So, yeah. But it is a really good book. And there's also one called Replacing Darwin Made Simple. It's a little bit shorter, a little bit more concise. If you want a shorter version, the same ideas, you can get that book as For well. For people like me that yeah, me couldn't understand that book. <laughs> All right, another uh, article from Science Daily. 450 million-year-old sea creatures had a leg up on breathing. Now, this is a new study that took uh, some fossils of trilobites. And it's been a bit of a mystery to understand how trilobites were able to breathe. And new examinations of these fossils using CT scanning technology 
has been able to take what we normally would have kind of chiseled away in a sedimentary rock to get to the fossil parts and see that there were these little feather-like structures, gill structures, mm. on the legs of these trilobites. And contrary to what they had previously thought, this wouldn't be an efficient way to breathe because they're using their legs to stir up the sediment and make it hard to breathe through. Uh, these are actually structures on their leg that are intended to help them breathe. And they are sophisticated breathing structures, right? They're just created that way. It's not something all from simple to complex. They're already sophisticated. And this is supposedly 450 million years ago, but they're already very complex. Why? Because they did not evolve. Rather, they were created. Mm -hmm. right? So when you think about the, the layers that these things are found in, this is supposedly some of the oldest uh, animal life that would have been around on the planet. And yet it already appears in a very complex form right from the beginning. There's no record of how it evolved from simpler things. And this is often called the Cambrian explosion. That's right. Mm -hmm. kind of the, the big bang of biology, more or less. There's also a quote in here about these breathing structures. They say, the breathing structures of the trilobites appear much the same as gills and modern marine arthropods like crabs and lobsters. Mm -hmm. So we're still, we see similar structures today in different ways. Sure. Yep. Yep. God is the designer repurposing those parts in different ways. Yeah. All right, this is a fun theology topic. Was yep, the that's why I didn't comment on the last one. Save that for this one. Tim's going to take all this one. Was the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden really an apple? And it's right there on your computer. Yeah, it's right there. Okay. But when we think about the forbidden fruit, does Scripture ever actually tell us, Tim, what the fruit was? Uh, yes, it was fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's all we know. But as we think about what it, did it taste the way like, it's right? been described in literature or it was bad, so probably yeah, chili. put into, <laughs> put into uh, to images like stained glass that we see here, it's often represented as an apple. And this is one of those times where I felt really smart because I had this idea thinking, well, Latin, the word for apple is malum, mm -hmm. and that also means evil. And so before I had even heard this idea, that was kind of my conjecture in my mind that that's probably how this came about. So do you think that's a reasonable Yeah, that, that's hypothesis? very reasonable because you don't see it in, in Jewish artwork. You know, they're reading the Hebrew Bible and they, they, it just calls it a fruit, you know, a typical word for fruit. So that you don't see the apple being the, the type of fruit in their artwork. But what you do see is that this is popping up ever since the Latin Vulgate around, Jerome translated the Latin Vulgate around 400 AD. And uh, so he uses a word that can be confused for an apple, even at the time, it just meant fruit yeah. as well, but eventually sure. it became something yeah. that was used for And that's an a very apple. clever language device that he probably used to distinguish this evil thing that brought evil into the world as a simple fruit. And, and it's, a, it's a reminder that translation work can be very tricky and languages change over time. And so sometimes what meant something two or 300 years ago, it meant one thing, but now it means something different. We have to be very careful in how we interpret, how we understand scripture. Yeah. The same, almost identical thing happened with, uh, you guys have all heard of the olive branch, right? This, this symbol of peace, right? Well, scripture talks about it in, in Genesis 8 when the dove brought back an olive leaf, not an olive branch, okay? It's a leaf in the original language and in the Greek Septuagint, it's a leaf. But when Jerome translated the Latin, Vulgate, he chose a word that can mean twig or branch. I mean, it's hard to imagine a dove carrying back a branch. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. they, they can carry a leaf, okay? Yeah. Uh, and that's what it is, but in, it's become part of our culture. We hear people say olive branch, and we think of biblical imagery, and you see the dove drawn with a branch, and it's, no, it's a leaf. It's a leaf. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And this is a good reminder that we need to be careful with 
letting images and other outside ideas influence the way we think about Scripture and let Scripture be the guide. All right, let's end on a positive note. We've got one last article here. Sounds good. Oh, and so the summary of the last one, we don't know exactly what yeah, type of fruit it was. We don't know what the <laughs> it, fruit was. Yeah, yeah it probably was not that not. All right, Franklin Graham's, oh, excuse me, Franklin Graham wins British bus ad censorship suit. That's a mouthful right there. <laughs> so this goes back a few years to 2018 when Franklin Graham was organizing um, rallies uh, centered around the idea of hope, and he wanted to put these advertisements on uh, buses, and the different churches in the area were supporting this, and and the uh, the governing authorities pushed back and said, no, you can't put these signs on there. That's right. Yeah, and it's interesting. If you look at the governing authorities and their reaction to Franklin Graham and his message about the Bible, biblical truth, and sexuality from a biblical perspective, and uh, homosexuality being a sin, and they heard some of his preaching in different ways, and their response to this was, they called what he said, they called it venom, they called it he's spewing bile, and they were shocked by his rhetoric. And he's simply just teaching biblical truths. And the more culture becomes more and more secular, the more they view the biblical worldview as not just weird, but wrong and evil. And yeah, and he's not doing it in a hateful way either. He's not. I mean, there are some oh, people who say correct. they're teaching biblical point. truth in a very yeah. angry way, but that's not how, if you've seen Franklin Graham speak before, he doesn't it do it that way. He communicates in a gracious but truthful right. way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So it's the idea is that these people fear or are, are, are angry at or hate, and it's the ideas that come right from Scripture. Yeah. So as this worked its way through the courts there in the UK, yep. they actually ruled against the uh, local governments who had forbid the signs and said that to prevent this message was a form of religious discrimination. So here we're actually seeing a, a good glimmer of hope from the UK. And as we think about the, the religious persecution that's happening, we see the UK is probably about 10 years ahead of us on a lot of these things. Maybe so, two years at this point, but yeah. <laughs> we're, we're catching we're accelerating up fast. Catching pretty fast. quickly to catch yeah. up with those things. But a good bit of, of news there out of the UK. All right, that's all the time we've got for Answers News today. We'll see you back again on Monday. God bless. See you guys.